And though it doesn't feel like this now, this pandemic will pass. It won't last forever. And one day, hopefully soon, we will be looking back on it, not living through it. What you've seen throughout this crisis is that the, the union working together with the, 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 the money for supporting people through furlough, the, the army working on the, on the testing, moving people around. But now uh, what we want to do is build back better together. The reputation of the Scottish government tainted. The standing of this parliament diminished. A culture of secrets and cover-up that is only growing and it is all taking place on Nicola Sturgeon's watch. There is a reputation here that I think is uh, perhaps disintegrating before our eyes and it's, uh, it's not mine, may, may I say, but Ruth Davison has just gone through there uh, a litany of nonsense. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. Uh, here with me, as always, is Gina Davidson, our Deputy Political Editor at the paper. Uh, later on, we're going to hear from uh, Callum Steele, who is the uh, General Secretary of the Scottish Police Federation. He's going to talk about the scenes that I'm sure many listeners uh, of the podcast will have seen in Glasgow on Saturday. And he'll also link it to the the uh, anti-immigration raid demonstration that we saw in Kenmuir Street and Pollock Shields as well. Um, on Thursday. Um, that's later on. Uh, Gina, welcome once again. How are you? Uh, are you fully recovered from the election madness yet? I think so. I think so. I think the tiredness has passed, thankfully. And, uh, and we're all back on the wheel again of um, just what happens in, in Scottish Parliament. Not quite on a daily basis yet, but it's it's moving towards that. We did have the, um, quite frankly, the uh, non-stop drama of the deputy presiding officer elections on Friday, which uh, I think is probably the, one of the more niche things that uh, political journalists have to have to sit through and watch. But it was also intensely dull and lasted for six hours, I think, in the end. Oh, on... it, it, yeah, it was just, um, I can't believe you weren't absolutely gripped by it. <laughs> it's, um, it's one of those um, strange processes in Hollywood where they use the exhaustive ballot as a means of electing um, people to the deputy presiding officer posts and, and in fact, the presiding officer, but we didn't have to do that because we only had one candidate last week and that was uh, Alison Johnson, a Scottish Green MSP. Who is um, who has made a bit of history there by being the first Green to be the presiding officer and also uh, the second woman uh, to to hold that position. So it'd be interesting to see how she um, performs in that role, taking over from Ken McIntosh. But of course, she had two deputies um, to be appointed as well, and there were ten MSPs who put themselves forward for those positions. And um, I think the first person to to be eliminated was Bill Kidd in the first round with just four votes. <laughs> then we had, you know, various people on six votes, seven votes, so on, who decided to bow out gracefully. And eventually we got to Annabel Ewing being elected as the first DPO. And then the whole process had to start again with the, the same original <laughs> people going forward. And um, eventually we ended up with Liam MacArthur. So we have a Green presiding officer, an SNP, DPO and a Liberal Democrat DPO. I did have, uh, I think it was a party source in the Conservatives going, uh, speaking to me on Friday I, as, as we were watching it going, you know, can we not just all sit down and agree that this was after Annabel Ewing had been elected, could you all just sit down and agree that Liam MacArthur's going to win and not bother with the three hours that we're going to have to go through next when all of these SNPs sat in, a, sat in the public lobby of Holyrood looking like they're sitting a, an English exam Um just yes. without any invigilators walking up and down and tutting. That's true. That's true. And I tend to think how many pieces of paper were printed for each round of voting. You know, it's just it was just madness that that couldn't even be done electronically. But yeah, the the, fir the first go. test of Alison Johnston's green credentials in that DPO yes. uh, <laughs> election. Um, but that that was the dullest part of last week. Uh, we also had various things on. Um, you know, I mean. It's, it's it would be remiss not to note to note the fact that today is the first big reopening for most of the country apart from Murray and Glasgow you know we we can hug people again we can should you uh, have, choose to should you choose to of course you know cautiously <laughs> hugging I think was Jason Leach's words on the Sunday show yesterday um and you can go into other people's homes for the first time astonishingly since September um which was when that that rule was first brought in um 
it is a big moment, but it's also kind of tinged with caution and concern with the Indian variant. Um, I mean, where do you see this going? I mean, it's a, it's good news for some, bad news for others, and more of the same. Yeah, I I, I would be very surprised if there's a kind of wholesale uh, letting down of defences today. You know, I mean, I think it'll be a, gr- a gradual process. Obviously, um, a lot of people who haven't seen family or friends or being able to hug their gran, which seems to be the thing that everybody wants to do for those lucky enough to still have their grands around, um, is is something that um, people will be doing. But I do think, I think, you know, there's a lot of trepidation out there still amongst the general public, um, unless you're a Rangers fan, of course, but we'll get onto that later, um, you know, who might not be so keen to, to rush into uh, going back to the how the way things were before especially with this new Indian variant, which is causing some concern. Although, again, there seem to be some good news on that and they think that the vaccinations actually do protect against it. But um, I would think that for some people, this will be great and they will go to the pub and they'll drink indoors rather than outdoors. Um, But again, I think you'll find that there'll be a lot of people who will still be very cautious about what they do over the next few weeks. I I know from a personal perspective, I am, you know, I'm unvaccinated, I'm, Young, I'm probably one of the set penultimate groups of people to get a. Nobody a jag likes in the a poster. Nobody likes uh, a poster, Connor. <laughs> like, like, I like to mention the fact that I'm still youthful every now and again. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know personally, I'm still quite nervous. I don't think I'll be going to a pub until I get, you know, at least my first jag. Um, because, yeah. you know, while the option is there, I have spent 15 months very carefully avoiding this virus that I haven't managed to catch. And I'd quite like to keep it that way. And I imagine there's actually quite a lot of people who probably feel the same way. Yes, your reaction uh, and that of Jane Bradley, our other colleague, when I said I was going into Parliament last week for the election of the, the presiding officer, was was quite interesting. You were both a bit appalled, I think, that I was I was going anywhere. But I don't know if it was um, having been at uh, two different election counts the previous weekend. I was feeling a bit braver about things. So yes, I was on a train and was in the Parliament. Um, and it, to be honest, it was it was fine. Everything was fine, and there was there weren't that many people there. Interestingly, and also. You know the parliament's um, got it all quite nailed down quite well in terms of where you can be and what you can do and and so on. Um, but it was just nice to be out. I was going to say nice I mean, to be out. We're in the ridiculous position. Well, I'm in the ridiculous position of having covered now Holyrood for getting on a year and having never actually worked from the building. Uh, so I think I went went in to get my security pass a while ago, and I, I I still don't know where I'm going or what I'm doing or where I'm meant to be based or what what. Um, so it's going to be a very, I think it'll be a shock to the system, actually, everyone getting back to normal, if we do get back to normal, um, as quickly as is being suggested. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, before we, we speak to Callum, I think it's worthwhile as just covering, you know, I think, first of all, the Kenmuir Street protest on, on Thursday. Um, I thought that was a remarkable uh, example of when a protest you know, there's a significant people power, a lot of, you know, people make Glasgow type things were going around on social media. But there's the political battle here between the Scottish government, you know, Nicholas Sturgeon, Hamza Yusuf, etc. And the Home Office. I, I don't know what you thought, what you made of all of that af- after Thursday, because it was, there was strong words being being said by a lot of politicians around something that is pretty routine in the end, you know, these, these immigration raids. Yes, I, I- I found it the whole thing quite fascinating, and I think what we saw there was an emboldened Scottish government just re-elected, you know, um, with a with almost a majority, but with a, a greater share of the vote and so on, um, feeling emboldened to be able to take on the Home Office in in the way that you know they did via social media, and obviously there were there were phone calls going on uh, in the background as well. Um, I think. It's a very strange position for a government to be in, and I think you know we'll, we'll flesh this out a bit when we speak to Callum Steele in terms of you know what is the law, and then you know what you also um, encourage in, in the citizenship to be able to protest against what they see as being the wrong thing to do. So you know you know 
walking that line is is very tricky for a government. But I think uh, Nicholas Sturgeon and Humza Youssef came down very much on one side of that. So there will, without doubt, be a fallout um, diplomatically between the UK and, and Scottish governments as a result. Now, the Scottish government probably don't care. You know, they, they want um, to, to be seen to be doing things differently to be to or to want to be able to do things differently there are there's definitely an argument to be had about whether or not don raids are the way to go about doing anything there's something particularly sneaky and underhand about them being you know undertaken at that time of day and i think in a way you know what happened in Kemmure street was phenomenal to see you know ordinary people come out and say actually that that's wrong you know maybe these maybe these men you know, shouldn't be here legally. Maybe, you know, maybe there is maybe an issue around their immigration status, but it should be done and handled in a much more civilised fashion than trying to, you know, take people out of their beds at that time of the day in the hope that nobody notices. And I think that was very powerful. And um, I, I would, you would, you would like to think that it might change things um, in terms of how the, the Home Office approaches uh, doing that, but I, I would doubt that very much. But it definitely opens up a real, another uh, real schism between how we like to see how we like to think how we do things in Scotland compared to um, to, to the rest of the UK. And um, that feeds directly, obviously, into the whole um, the whole aim of this government, which is to have another independence referendum at some point. And, you know, immigration as a tool will become quite useful for them. In, in I thought that it respect. was particularly interesting. I, I tried to think, hear your thoughts on it, Gina, but I thought the move from Hamza um, and the Justice Secretary, you know, as the Justice Secretary, I should say, um, to... Um, you know, almost challenge the Labour MSPs in Glasgow to agreeing to a call for the devolution of immigration powers. I think I think it belied a little bit of the the, the political motives behind what was going on, and you know why the, the 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 social media reaction from the government was 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 what it was. Um, what do you think the right move is there for Labour? Because that is a difficult that is a difficult circle to square. Yes, it is, and you know, and you have to, you have to smile rather wryly at the. I think the tweet said something like, "Let's take you know our constitutional differences out of this and and talk about devolving immigration <laughs> to Scotland, which is a huge constitutional issue." You know, however, um, you can't uh, blame them for trying, I suppose. But I think, I think for Labour, you know, you know, they have to uh, be careful to, to 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 walk the line that that is about you know. That that people power thing is is a good thing, and let's look at the issue that they were protesting about, rather than necessarily then say this means whole scale uh, devolution of immigration is what's required to be able to to stop these things. Um, there, ha- you know, for Labour, they'll have to find a, a middle ground, as they do on all of these issues around constitution. And I think, as we know, but prior to COVID, um, the the Scottish government produced. A booklet um, all about how immigration should be devolved and how they believed it could work, and that was um, sent off, obviously, to, to the UK government. But which was they poured cold water on it right from the start. And there are issues around how a devolved immigration um, policy would work in terms of how you keep people in Scotland, because you know part of the problem for Scotland is that you know. People don't necessarily want to come to Scotland from other countries. I mean, they might they will come to work absolutely, and they might come, you know, to live and and come to love being in Scotland. But it's not necessarily the first place on their their list when they want to come to the UK. Generally, because of the weather, let's face it, rather than anything <laughs> else. So, um, but we need them for our workforce, um, which you know, and their aging population and so on. So there's a there's an issue that has to be resolved for Scotland in terms of immigration. Brexit hasn't helped that. It's 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 a, a problem. Um if you just speak to any farmer, you know, that wants their 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 fruit crop being brought in this this summer and they'll tell you that. But um you know whether or not devolution of immigration can happen if people are then able to travel freely within the UK. And that 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 that's that is the big issue. And you know, the SNP haven't really managed to find a resolution to that that would allow the UK government to think, right, okay, maybe this is this is possible. Absolutely. Well we we'll we'll see how that I'm sure we'll hear more and more about um you know all of these issues in the future. Um I, especially with in regards to Kemia Street. The Kemia Street uh, protests certainly felt a little bit of a watershed moment of, uh, in terms of relationships between the Scottish government and the Home Office. So I'm sure we'll we'll hear more from that. Um, I, 
as of today, certainly of the latest, we record this on Monday, goes out on Tuesday, but the latest numbers I have available to me is that 28 arrests and five officers were injured, um, one very seriously in in Glasgow on Saturday. Um, Callum Steele, who's the General Secretary of the, of the Scottish Police Federation, uh, kindly agreed to join us uh, to, to talk about that. So welcome to the STEAMY, um, the General Secretary of the Scottish Police Federation, Callum Steele. Um, with me, as always, is uh, Gina, who will uh, will chat about Rangers and uh, the scenes in Glasgow at the weekend. Uh, Callum, can I start with asking you, um, you know, what your reaction was to the scenes in Glasgow on on Saturday? Uh, well, uh, it, it was difficult to watch. Um, it was difficult to follow on social media. And I can only imagine how horrendous it must have been for the people that were actually there, and particularly for the, the police officers that I represent. Uh, I think we're all familiar enough now with the, the images of the health workers that uh, we saw with the, you know, the red rings around their face as a consequence of wearing these FFP3 respirator masks for long periods of time whilst working in the health setting to protect themselves from COVID. Well, everyone that was working from a police perspective on in and around the west of Scotland, in fact, across the whole country yesterday, was wearing these FFP3 respirator masks. Now, adding to that the fact that police officers wear their body armour, uh, many of them were carrying shields, uh, and the additional weight that that creates uh, is, you know, it's, it's a physically difficult um, uh, thing to add on to the fact that their breathing is uh, undertaken through a respirator. Then add on to that the with uh, hostility, uh, anger, uh, vitriol, uh, missiles, projectiles, fireworks uh, thrown in their direction. And finally, uh, add into the mix the fact that the west of Scotland and Glasgow in particular had just recently had the notification of a significant upturn in coronavirus cases uh, and the variant of concern being reported in there. And my immediate thoughts were to what on earth was going through the minds of the police officers that were working on the ground there. Because from an observer's perspective, it was difficult enough, uh, but actually having uh, the expectation for those that were on the ground, I can only imagine that it was. Uh, and nigh on impossible concoction of emotions and concerns uh, whilst delivering the most professional police service that they could under those circumstances. We saw some um, pretty horrific uh, images after Saturday, Callum, of police officers who had been injured. Um, I mean, what, what happens to them um, now? How do they go about their job i mean how 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 does policing an event like that and ending up injured affect officers um on a personal level well i, th I think that the, the issue of physical injury is always relatively easy to understand you know people take the view that if your arm is broken you'll be back to full duty when your arm is fixed uh, or when your teeth are broken you'll be back to full duty when the pain and the swelling and the prosthetics are uh, are, are in place uh, we, we also had officers, uh, one officer in particular, who was uh, tossed into the air. Um, someone came behind her, in between her legs and stood up, um, knocked her into the air and she landed on her back. Um, now, anyone that's been unfortunate enough to have any form of back injury knows that the recovery time, physical recovery time for that can be exponential, uh, you know, compared to with what people are looking at, you know, a hand or an arm in a plaster cast or a broken tooth. These are things that people can see, but some of the other physical injuries uh, are you know, less obvious. But beyond that, there, there's the psychological impact of it. You know, police officers that have been in the service for a very long length of time have described what they were dealing with in the west of Scotland, Glasgow and George Square principally, uh, yesterday are some of the worst violence that they have seen in over 20 years of police service. Now, the vast majority of police officers do not have over 20 years police service. So the psychological impact of coming up against a crowd of people intent on causing harm to you at your place of work uh, is something that uh, will be uh, much more difficult to deal with 
Uh, and I'm not, uh, I'm not sure that, that there's a genuine appreciation for that. Now, of course, those that have the physical injuries, in, in much the same way as we are all different in our own, uh, in our own recoveries, some of these things uh, brush off, um, you know, members of our own families. Others uh, take a much longer period of time to, to recover from them. So police officers are no different in that regard. Uh, some will be uh, up and ready to go as soon as they are physically able. Others, even though they have suffered no physical injury, uh, could be quite mentally fragile for a very long period of time. And I hope uh, that uh, we don't lose police officers from the service as a consequence of this, because you would understand that it's not an unreasonable reaction for some people to say, this is not the job that I joined. Uh, I don't need to do this. I don't need to risk injury. Um, And I don't think it's over-exaggerating to say I don't need to risk death when we know that um, one of the, at least one of the individuals in George Square lost his own hand uh, yesterday as a consequence of a pyrotechnic going off in his own hand. Uh, And I don't need to put my family through the anguish uh, and anxiety of not knowing if I'm going to come home in one piece. So I I hope that uh, uh, we lose new officers as a consequence of this, but the the psychological impact is often uh, more dramatic uh, and longer reaching than any physical injuries that officers may have sustained. We we saw on Thursday last week in Kenmuir Street um, a similar gathering. I I, I say similar in the sense that it was many people um, rather than anything in terms of what actually happened. But do you think that the response from politicians helped with the uh, policing of, Gla- of of Glasgow on Saturday, you know, did the response of Nicola Sturgeon and Hamza Youssef at, on on Thursday and Friday aid the police, or did it actively hurt hurt the policing operation that happened? I, th- I think that the nature of politics is that politicians will always politic, uh, and particularly when it comes to issues that are close to their own heart. Um, whether the it ultimately makes policing easier. Uh, or more difficult. I'm, I'm not entirely convinced that, that their contributions are helpful, um, but you know, in the absence of uh, you know political commentary, whether it's Nicola Sturgeon, whether it's Hamza Yusuf, whether it's Murdo Fraser, uh, whether it's Paul Sweeney or others, um, the the fact that they are willing to uh, speak or comment in a highly partisan way, I don't think is particularly helpful. The, the only commonalities between Kenmuir Street and Pollock Shields and the gatherings in Glasgow and George Square predominantly are that they were unlawful under the coronavirus regulations, that there were large numbers of people present, and that the, consequently there were large numbers of police officers present. Police officers present. Thereafter, the similarities end. Um, the you know politicians on one side of a particular argument at any point in time, um, you know, praise police actions. At the same time, they can expect criticism from those on the other side and indeed vice versa. And I actually think that that there was a starkness in terms of the messaging. And I think to some extent it's a consequence of time more than anything else. Uh, Where we had the incident in in Kenmuir Street a couple of days before the the celebrations in, in Glasgow. And politicians, to my mind, made very cheap political points over the adherence to the coronavirus uh, regulations uh, on gatherings, uh, whilst ignoring the more fundamental issues that were at play there. Now, for what it is worth, I I think there is inevitably going to be a long-running political fallout between the Home Office and Scottish ministers and Scottish government over their support, their overt support for the actions of a crowd in Pollock Shields uh, to prevent deportations. Now, there may well be arguments, in fact, there are arguments and debates to be had over immigration policy, the approach of the Home Office, you know, dawn raids, the wisdom or lack of of undertaking uh, dawn raids on Adid Mubarak, uh, I think is almost defies logic. Um, but we saw those activities being supported by some, condemned by others, and the same to a lesser extent, was through George Square, where there was, I think, some fairly mischievous political commentary in advance of the Ranger celebrations from some, again, orientated around the, the coronavirus uh, limitations on gatherings and the expectation for a similarly passive police response or perceived passive police response. 
But what, what I think is, uh, is also really important here is that I think the police response in both those instances, although condemned by the opposite sides, were the correct ones. Um, the police could have ensured the Home Office were able to enforce their arrests and removal from Kenmuir Street, but the consequence of doing so would have been turning a very passive, albeit uh, large mob, mob maybe unf- in fact, mob is definitely unfair, uh, a large passive group uh, of protesters into an angry, hostile mob and the potential for violence and injury on both the police side and the general public side would have been uh, massive. Similarly, had the police waded into George Square uh, when uh, I think at one point there was an estimate of some 15,000 people in George Square, um, with some, and I've, I've read some suggestions that we should have got in with tear gas and water cannon, then the, the inevitability of severe injury, uh, extreme violence far beyond that that took place, and possibly even the loss of life would have been very real. So in, on both occasions, the police, of course, were damned and criticised for their for their actions. Uh, ironically, uh, on different sides of the political divide, uh, but it does show just how difficult a position police officers find themselves in. And actually, I think politicians need to dial the rhetoric down. Uh, you know, at this particular moment in time, there is no lack of opportunity for conflict in Scotland. There's certainly no lack of opportunity for conflict in the west of Scotland. Uh, and whether that is, uh, and I'm going to be slightly simplistic here, whether that is Celtic and Rangers, whether that is Catholic and Protestant, whether that is Unionist uh, or Nationalist, whether that is pro-Palestinian rights, whether that is pro-Israeli um, uh, rights, whether that is Brexit or whether that is pro-European, all of these issues are in the melting pot uh, in the activities in the west of Scotland just now, the, the general societal activities in the west of Scotland. Further to that again, we have better weather, a frustration over months of lockdown, and I think we are, if not quite at the tinderbox moment, there is the danger that we could get there very quickly simply through carelessness. That That's fascinating, um, what you're saying there, Callum. I wonder if there's any way you can give us an insight into how, given these divides, these binary, polar, um, opposite positions that that are that are held around a lot of those issues that you talked about, how how do the police even begin to um, approach, you know, how they're going to organise themselves for events, for protest marches, you know, to make sure that those kind of powder keg moments don't don't explode? And I mean. You know, there was a lot of criticism of the police uh, since Saturday about, oh, well, you should have known this was going to happen and should have been able to, to nip it in the bud earlier on rather than allowing all these people to, to get together. Um, I mean, is, is that even possible in these situations? And, and how, 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 does the, how do the police go about weighing up what the best approach is? Well, I, I don't think the issues of the past couple of days have their origins uh, in, in a few weeks ago. The difficulties created are associated with the coronavirus restrictions. I, I think we saw very early on, certainly to, towards the tail end of spring and into early summer of last year, resulted in the emergence of polarising positions, whether it was Black Lives Matter, whether it was uh, the colonial past of the, the, the British Empire, uh, approaches to statues, approaches to climate change protests, uh, whether uh, youths gathering in our parks drinking were receiving a different approach to those gathering on anti-lockdown protests or anti-vaxxers or uh, anti-mask demonstrations. All, all of these things resulted in the very early emergence of political positionings on some things. Uh, and that undoubtedly uh, did not help. Uh, with the benefit of hindsight, I, I believe the police service should have probably uh, paid more consideration to the, the the potential viewing of their approach to the policing of one event and other sections of the communities, rather than looking at these events as single public order policing uh, activities, which is generally the approach that's taken. Uh, it's a case of uh, how do we as a police service make sure that we maintain uh, law and order on our streets, recognising that 
uh, maintaining order is not always done by maintaining and upholding the full extent of the law. So uh, you know, I think most people would agree that the, ma- the maintenance of order is far more important than the issuing of, of a fixed penalty ticket for someone gathering in a, in a public place or, or at any place. So in, in that regard, uh, and particularly given the narratives and the frustrations that have been very evident, I think, in those of us that follow um, the Scottish political discourse and follow Scottish societal attitudes over the past number of months, I believe needs to have a to result in a fairly rapid um, assessment and engagement between police, government, local authorities, and the myriad of different interest groups that are out there to make sure that we are as far as possible looking at engaging and educating uh, that whilst their particular cause may seem absolutely precious to them, that there will be an inevitability of a reaction from other parts of uh, 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 communities. And I think that as a police service, that's a huge challenge that that lies ahead of us. Uh, But if we, and I use the royal we here in terms of policing, if we collectively don't engage in that uh, conversations and m- many conversations, then we could be in for a a, a, a summer of uh, of significant difficulty and disorder. Um, you know whether it's you know whether it's the independence movement wanting to assert the right to march and show their support for independence, uh, or the Orange Order wanting to uh, re-establish their uh, their inability over the past year and a year or so to show how much their culture and background means to them. All of these issues, and that's even before we get to the instability of politics in Northern Ireland and how that impacts uh, on the West of Scotland, all of these things uh, have a bearing on uh, police activities and, you know, by extension, public attitudes towards the police um, because of the, the side of a particular argument that members of the public find themselves on. So, you know, I, I actually think that we have many more questions than we have answers. Uh, but the fact that you know podcasts such as this exist, I think, give the opportunity to air these issues in a way that you know three-minute radio interviews tend not to to lend themselves to. I was going to ask Callum. I, mean, I thought the the election period was quite interesting in in the sense that you had two very different approaches to justice in Scotland being being you know offered to the Scottish people. Do you think that? You know, talks of a soft touch justice system, which is the, the the regular conservative line. Do you think that impacts how the public view how the police interact? You know, day to day, because at the end of the day, you know, if they're hearing this week in week out from from the opposition, and then they see the scenes in Glasgow, do you think that 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 impacts how the police, you know, actually deal with the public on a day to day basis with in incidents like this? It certainly doesn't impact how the police police, but but I, I think it does impact in how the public think. Uh, I mean, if we were to break this down to binaries, you could argue that the tough on crime and the causes of crime message uh, did not resonate particularly strongly at the election, and that the more, and again to use your own language, the more soft touch justice um, uh, position did resonate. I think to some extent that depends on why people vote for political parties. You know, manifestos I've described as being a bit like your third-year options paper in school. Uh, there's some good in there, there's some bad in there, and then you're left with a couple of turkeys that you have to swallow because it's just what's left. Um, but if you thereafter apply what people believe their views are to their own particular set of circumstances at any moment in time, you find that people are very authoritarian and illiberal. Um, So regardless of whether you're on the the left or the right of the political argument, one of the fascinating things for me over the past 12 to 16 months has been watching the contrary nature of personal opinion and how that is translated into public expressions. So those that would present themselves as being libertarian by leaning uh, have expressed some of the most authoritarian views as to what they want the police to do. They want the police to, you know, stop our buses, stop our trains, stop our planes, go into people's houses, lock them up, stop them from moving. Uh, entirely authoritarian views presented by people who argue that they are libertarian. And yet, on the other side of the coin, you have those that 
stand on the tough on the crime and causes of crime argument saying the police should be liberal to my cause or our cause because they've been liberal elsewhere. So that there, there is, to some extent, a, a significant dichotomy in messaging versus people's views. But I suppose, to some extent, that's the, the inevitable um, consequence of human nature. We are contrary and contrary by our nature. Uh, and we are capable of arguing black is white one day and then arguing that white is black the next. Uh, and try, trying to navigate that reality is, uh, is part and parcel of, uh, of policing. As opposed to some extent, if we're, if we're always being criticised by somebody, uh, we can't be being accused of being completely wrong all of the time. Now, there's there's obviously um, arrests uh, been made on Saturday and, and um, Police Scotland have said there are more arrests to come um, as a result of the, the, the Rangers fans' activities in Glasgow. Um, do you think the club did enough? I know the club came under a lot of um, criticism earlier on this year when there was an original gathering. I mean, do, do you think, maybe not just Rangers, maybe other football clubs as well, do they have enough sway over their fans, do you think, to, to be able to prevent these, these kind of situations? And, and if they don't, do they need to introduce, um, do they need to introduce harsher penalties like saying, well, that's, you, you're banned, you know, you can no longer be a season ticket holder or you, you can't come to see matches in future. I mean, what, what do you think the police would like to see uh, the clubs doing in these situations? Well, I, th- I think clubs, and particularly Celtic and Rangers, but obviously not exclusively, uh, in you know, in Scottish psyche, are a massively um, pivotal thing for for a huge amount of people. But but I, you know, I do not believe that the clubs are responsible for the violence that took place. In fact, I don't believe that Rangers Football Club is responsible for the violence that took place in George Square uh, at the weekend. Uh, I do believe that whilst football clubs in themselves aren't the problem, they are definitely part of the solution. Uh, and one of the things that you know I, I am frustrated about is that clubs generally tend to play to their fan base and the expectations of the fan base and tone down what should be stronger messaging rather than simply go out and out and say, look, guys or girls, this is the wrong thing to do at this moment in time. You know, be absolutely explicit uh, about the kind of things that they expect. Uh, but they're not responsible for the, for the violence. You know, the, you know, the, the board at, at Rangers, those that work in and around Rangers, and those that play for Rangers are not responsible for it. Uh, I mean, it, it would be, you know, with, with every possible respect to professional footballers, uh, it would be a sad day indeed if people draw their moral compass from the direction of professional footballers, uh, you know, as uh, you know, as, as skillful as they are with their feet, they tend not to be the most diplomatic uh, when it comes to what comes out of their mouths. Um, but you know, so bearing that in mind, I don't think the clubs are the problem, but they're definitely part of the solution. You know, again, it's massively simplistic, but it, it would be un. I think it would be dishonest to say that there are those that follow Rangers that are not sympathetic to Palestinian rights and that there are those that follow Celtic that are not sympathetic to Israel's right to defend itself from rocket fire. Yet, if you look at the very polarised views that their fans present uh, on social media and their willingness to be affiliated with certain public events, you would be drawn into the impression that that's exactly how they, they divide. You know, people are fickle individuals. They have a variety of conflicting views, um, and you, you know, the, I think there is an inevitability, particularly in the west of Scotland, uh, that both Celtic and Rangers have to uh, recognise that these totally contrary views, when it comes to uh, policing activities, uh, have to feature uh, in their in their responses to community expectations uh, in the weeks and months ahead. I, I was I was going to say I, I wanted to move it on a little bit to talk about COVID impact on, on on the police more generally, and you had some very strong words on Twitter on Sunday following on from the scenes in Glasgow, you know where the I think you said that there's been warm words um, put from the government to 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 the police force, but not very much in the way of you know 
genuine help or um you know uh funding to to improve improve how the police police force operates and could you go into that with a bit more detail you know where where does the police force stand in Scotland now after 18 months of covid compared to where it was before uh we're in a difficult position uh and uh, the the issues in respect of you know the police service i actually think are really really important well i would say that wouldn't i um, <laughs> But, but I, I get the sense that there is a view in politics in general, particularly in government, that policing is done. You know, police reform, size and extra officers, tick, let's move on to something else, uh, health and education, uh, possibly. Uh, but the stark reality is, is that this police service has been lumping through the past five, seven years with chronic underfunding. And... All of these things have a bearing in our operational resilience and our ability to investigate crime. That's just the, the reality of it. And, and I could dedicate hours and hours and hours to that. But on the specific issue of COVID, uh, our legislators put in place processes and requirements to expect police officers to go into what they themselves described as very dangerous COVID-rich environments, into people's homes, uh, where those that were involved in gatherings and parties at home were exponentially responsible for the spread of coronavirus in our communities. Yet, at the same time, there was a dogged refusal to protect those officers against coronavirus by vaccination. Now, that in its own right is, you know, fine with a small f if the subsequent activity associated with Policing was making sure that there's a recording and a testing regime in place to see what level of exposure police officers were, were, uh, were carrying, and more importantly, what level of virus they were then carrying on to other parts of the communities. But that never took place either. So we had a police service that was sending, on hundreds of occasions a day, officers into homes where those that were, by political description, responsible for spreading coronavirus um, were uh, were gathering and police officers were exposed to those risks. You would have thought that from a health perspective, if nothing else, even if they didn't care physically about police officers, that someone would have wanted to understand what risk that was creating to wider community transmission, but that never took place. So we have an absence of data. We have an absence of materials. So when a politician says to me that there is no evidence about the risks to police officers, I say, yeah, you're correct because you didn't bloody bother to try to get the evidence in the first place. Um, so, you know, in that regard, the police service and police officers are absolutely incandescent uh, into how politicians uh, respond. In fact, be much more simple, how the government uh, treated them uh, through this pandemic. Uh, and warm words you know, about the, the appreciation of the, their efforts on how they shouldn't uh, be exposed to this violence doesn't cut the mustard. Uh, they deserve better. Uh, they are absolutely at the front line of the public response to this coronavirus pandemic and hopeful. And even though we hope that this new Indian uh, variant uh, doesn't become a problem, if it does, it's going to be the police service are going to be expected to be front and centre of it. Uh, and despite that, we have a political abandonment uh, of the police service uh, in those kind of areas. Callum, I um, received a, a message from a friend of mine whose son is, a, is an officer. I'm not going to say which area. In Scotland, he works. And um, he said he, he caught up with them over the weekend and most of his team have had COVID and only those old enough have had the vaccination so far. So that's about 10% of the, the shift that he works. Um, and when they go to call, they must wear masks. If you know, in the carrying out of their duties, their mask comes off, you know, if they've had to be physical in, in an arrest or, or so on and so forth, then the suspect can make a complaint about this and then the officers have to be investigated for failing to keep their masks on. I mean, is this something that you're aware of? Is this something that that, that is widespread and are, are officers actually facing any kind of discipline over a, a mask coming off? And what do you say to the government about the fact that, well, that you, you kind of expressed it there, but um, about the fact that officers haven't been given priority for vaccination? Uh, again, the, 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 
in, in addition to the fact that time has lost all meaning over the past 14 months or so, uh, one of the strangest things from a police union perspective, a police federation perspective, is actually just how many complaints have come in from members of the public, just general members of the public, as well as those that there are you know, close uh, interactions with about police use of mask wearing. Uh, ironically, uh, I suppose it depends on your point of view, but the police are exempt when they're operationally active from wearing masks in any event. Although from their, from a health perspective, um, we, we clearly uh, wish officers to wear masks when, you know, for, for very obvious reasons. So, yes, those complaints come in. I'm, I'm not going to say the service is completely dismissive of them. Um, that would be, you know, that would result in further criticism of the police service. But they treat them with the seriousness that they deserve, I think is probably the politest way of, uh, of describing it. But that being said, you know, if, if you're a young officer, um, I'm, you know, over the past uh, 14, 16 months, we have had police officers come into the service. I've had no experience of, you know, policing pubs and clubs and busy streets and uh, alcohol-fueled violence and all the rest of it. But if your first experience uh, as a young officer is that you get complained about because somebody takes umbrage to the fact that they've thrown your mask off, uh, then I, I think that places a places an appreciation on officers that they are in a singularly unique employment position compared to almost anyone else in our society. Uh, and it certainly does drive at home that the willingness and propensity of people to complain about you is going to be ever-present. And, and from the government's perspective, or certainly from a police perspective in terms of message to government, government has legislated. You know, government did not idly make it by accident decide that police officers were going to be responsible for certain activities. They have a responsibility to make sure that those that they ask to perform the most dangerous jobs are looked after. And quite frankly, if governments aren't prepared to look after those that enforce the law and uphold the law for the protection of the public health of our nation, then they are fundamentally failing in their responsibilities. Uh, you know, what comfort can anyone take from the fact that the police are coming in and out of houses without the belief or the knowledge amount to certainty that these officers should have had the opportunity to be vaccinated. Because the vast majority of officers that were working in George Square and the west of Scotland, and Scotland as a whole uh, yesterday, were unvaccinated and will continue to be for uh, several months to come. The vast majority of our police service are in the lowest age cohorts for vaccination. Now, I am mercifully grateful that police officers aren't dying. Of course I am. Uh, but their risk of carriage and transmission because of the nature of their job, up close and personal. Uh, in fact, even at the weekend, and you know, you almost wouldn't believe that this was possible, but at the weekend, officers in the west of Scotland went into a two-bedroom flat to break up a party that had over 100 people present. Now, do you believe that those 100 people in that flat were all wearing their own masks, uh, that there wasn't their own breath and vapour in the air, potentially carrying uh, COVID because of the uptick in the, in the West of Scotland, yet the officers that are going in there uh, are not vaccinated. Uh, they may well have been wearing masks, but the ability to be heard and to communicate or even to have them left on in, this, in the event that things get hostile uh, are always going to be limited. And the, the government needs to have a much wider appreciation uh, as to what it is that it wants people to do in order to keep our community safe. Uh, not dying is a very important thing, uh, hugely important, but allowing our society and our justice system to function uh, should sit very, very closely alongside it. I was going to ask, um, Callum, uh, you know, leading on to that, there was a lot of discussions, probably more so last year than than this year, that there was a ch there was a significant change in the government's approach from using guidance around COVID rules to legislating for certain things you know i'm thinking you know issues such as wearing masks on public transport or wearing masks in retail do you think that it was a mistake and put more officers at risk than necessary to make that legislation rather than guidance um i, I don't think it uh, I, I don't think it put more officers at risk I, I i think there is a general issue around about the confusion between uh political guidance and legislative uh, reach. Uh, I think that there is, an, 
I, I hope I'm not alone in this, but I think that there is a danger between having a police service that advocates for government messaging, regardless of how well-intentioned that messaging is, rather than simply the upholding of the law. Uh, and I, I, I do believe that the police service has been pulled onto some political punches as a consequence of that. Um, unfortunately, uh, and perhaps some would argue it was a unique requirement given the realities of a, pan- of a global pandemic, but in general terms, I believe the police should simply stick to upholding the law and let the politicians make the messaging around about what else they expect people to do. Um, w- one of the, I actually think one of the biggest difficulties we had is that many of the announcements about what the next level of restrictions were going to be, they were made in advance and often went beyond what the law itself permitted. So in the very early days, there was lots of communication about you know distancing for you know for exercise, uh, how long, how many times you could go outdoors, and all the rest of it. Not a single syllable of it, of which was replicated in, in legislation. Now, often uh, the legislation was brought into effect with minutes' notice, um, and the ability of the police service to thereafter. You know, interrogate the legislation as was drafted to put in place operational guidance that actually reflected the limits of the law was always uh, up against it. And you know, anyone that uh, was ever unfortunate enough to go to try to peruse the amendments, the almost three weekly amendments that were coming out, was left looking at, I think I described it as a dog's breakfast, as a dog's breakfast of legislation that was ineligible to anyone except the most skilled lawyer and parliamentary drafts person. So the, 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 lack of, the lack of clear law and uh, political, me- I mean, wasn't it remarkable that you could always find the political messaging and guidance, but you couldn't find the law? Um, I mean, you know, you know go, going back to the impact of COVID on people's thinking and their tolerance for uh, you know, police activity and how far the government can reach itself. I, I think there's, I mean, I think there's a societal study to be undertaken about the willingness of a population to be governed by government advice and guidance rather than by the rule of law. Um, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's a remarkable thing. I mean, we, what's next? Are we, are we going to have the police advising you know, to eat your five a day and you know, only drink fourteen units of alcohol a week? Or, um, I mean, there are there are there are jobs and roles for the police service, uh, but delivering government messaging, regardless of how well intentioned it is, should not be one of them. Fantastic. Well, um, thank you very much, Callum. I, I, for for listeners at home, uh, they won't realise the the technical gremlins we've had to deal with today. So, um, thank you also for for, for putting up with us um, dur- during during today. And uh, yeah, thank you very much, Callum. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman.